0: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Ultimate Motorcycling podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwell's. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the Yamaha YZF R Seven, the comfortable supersport machine that is as capable on the racetrack as it is on the street. Check it out at your local Yamaha dealer, or of course at yamahamotorsports.com. In this week's first segment, senior editor Nick De Senna finally gets to ride the Aprilia RS 660 at Laguna Seca no less, pretty much the perfect track environment for Aprilia's brilliant middleweight sport bike. However, having said that, everyone acknowledges that the RS 660 is an awesome motorcycle on the road, but it's not a super sport machine. So could it be just a little out of its depth on the track? In the second segment, I chat with another one of my good buddies and riding friends from Honda, Mike Snyder. Mike was in the marketing department at Honda for several years before he retired a couple of years ago. His insights into a couple of the models and technologies developed during his tenure are interesting to hear. He's also quite the rider himself, an ex-club racer who, although he's hung up his racing leathers, he's now a guy who really enjoys his foreign touring exploits too. So. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The YZFR7 bridges the gap between the entry level YZFR3 and the prestigious YZFR1, offering a mid level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZFR7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true Supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZ-FR7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favourite Canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZ-FR7 for yourself at your local dealer
1: and see where our world meets yours. The legendary Laguna Seca, as everyone knows it, Um, you know, and we just went up for a a nice little track ride because we actually have not spun any laps aboard the Aprilia RS-660 at, um, I I wouldn't say its natural habitat, but uh, it's it's definitely not afraid of of ripping a fair amount of laps so you know the aprilia dna is is quite apparent even though aprilia wants to position the rs660 as a friendlier more streetable version and we'll get into all the nitty-gritty of that in just a moment all right so the
0: 660 just refresh my memory on what what kind of engine that is.
1: uh so that is a parallel twin engine that Follows similar architecture to the venerable RSV4 power plant, which is the, the V4 configuration. So uh, four cylinders, and obviously this is a two. Um, you know, claimed figures are are quite good. It's a very, very potent little parallel uh, twin engine. So makes something like 100 horsepower at 10,500 RPM and 49 foot-pounds of torque at uh, 8,500 RPM per Aprilia spec sheet. And when you kind of combine that with its, its, its overall wet weight, which comes in at about 403 pounds, you're really hitting that sweet spot for power to weight ratio. You have a very light motorcycle, plus what I would consider an ample amount of horsepower overall. And it's just something that, you know, if you're, I don't want to say a true beginner, but if you're coming up from maybe some sort of starter motorcycle, 300, 400, something like that, so you have your feet wet, and then you're jumping up into a middle middleweight motorcycle like this, you're not going to be intimidated by the power that it produces. It's always going to be extre- extremely exciting, which is one of the really cool characteristics with Aprilia's uh, P-Twin. It just it revs out nicely. It sounds really good because of that 270-degree uh, crank. That's sort of the uh, you know more fashionable Layout with aggressive parallel twin engines. You know the 892 uses the same thing. The Yamaha MT07 is the same, I think, isn't it? I believe so. Although I would, I would put this engine in that same elk with, uh, you know, the MT07, the uh, Aprilia RS660 engine, and the 892. Despite it being a much bigger engine in terms of just displacement they all kind of had that, have that similar vibe and feel where they are a little bit more energetic. They're a lot more, um, you know, they're sporty. They really fit the applications that they go into. Whereas when you start comparing stuff like the, the parallel twins that are in the Ninja 650, um, that's more of a street wise engine. Very friendly, very compliant, but really not going for the same thing, if you know what I mean. Um, so yeah. Uh, you know, just getting back into the engine stuff, you know, what I like about it is the fact that it is, um, it's aggressive to a point and it's a point where you can extract all the power out of it. And so it's always engaging and exciting. And that's something that I really enjoy about this engine. So when we put it in a racetrack application, you know, all of that still holds true on the street, the engines, very friendly, you know, um, very easy to use for riders across the skill spectrum in a racetrack scenario. And especially a racetrack like Laguna Seca, that's not necessarily a horsepower quote unquote racetrack. Um, you know, it fares incredibly well, if not excellently. You know, you're on you're using a lot of corner speed at Laguna Seca, carrying momentum, and that's something that you can really rely on on an engine like this where you're not intimidated by the power as you would be on maybe an RSV4, for example, that's making near 200 ponies. So, well, claimed it's it's above that, but at the wheel, probably around 190s, if not more. Anyway, a lot more reasonable numbers here. And it's still, in my opinion, just as fun because you're actually able to extract everything out of it, get on the gas, hold it wide open, throttle, you know, just do everything that your skill level can can actually... Get out of the bike and that's something that I love about this engine. Um, Not only does it sound awesome because it's essentially if we're gonna you know really really dumb things down it's essentially half of an RSV4 engine so sounds great just super peppy and fun and uh yeah that's a ripping little engine right there. Awesome and so the power is
0: is relatively linear I, I assume it's sort of pretty easy to ride.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, that's one of the really good things that Aprilia has done here. Again, they're trying to cast a wide net. And if you think about Aprilia's bike structure overall for a long time, they never really had a quote unquote middleweight motorcycle. It was always, you know, 900 CC, 750 CC V-twin engines like the Shiver, which is no longer in the American market. I'm not even sure if it's in Europe anymore. Dorsoduro, which I think was 750 900 from Arborite. Don't know. Anyway, they're gone. So who cares? But uh, <laughs> yeah, so, <okay. laughs> you know, and, and if you look at their sport bike offerings, modern Aprilia, at least, you can go back far enough and you'll find various sport bikes. Of- oh, yeah, the RS250. And- exactly. So when we talk about modern four-stroke, you know, in the past 10, 15 years, whatever, um, the RSV4 never had a little brother. Whereas you know, if you look at Japanese um, offerings, uh, even Ducati and other brands, there's always some sort of stepping stone. The Japanese have a fully fledged ladder where you can climb up from the lowest rung, from the R3 to the R7 to an R1, for example, using Yamaha as a as an example there. But um, and the R6 is still in Yamaha's lineup if you get it out of race bike. Anyway. But Aprilia never really had that stepping stone. And that's what the RS660's job is here to do. It's here to be a stepping stone into the RSV4 and bring in riders earlier. Um, but more importantly, it needs to do a little bit of both. It needs to do some track riding, needs to do some street riding. And you know, although there's a lot of stuff in this motor and, or not motor, but in this motorcycle that makes it a more street oriented motorcycle, Aprilia really can't help themselves, uh, sort of, you know, know, victims of their own base desires and uh, inadvertently made a really awesome track bike. (laughs) So, you know, at a place like Laguna Seca, which I mentioned before is not a horsepower track. And what I mean by that is you're spending a lot of time on the edge of the tire. You know, there's, um, right. There's 11 turns and there's a lot of elevation changes, a lot of, you know, good portion of a positive camber, a lot of fast sweeping corners. So you have to carry momentum. That's really good for lightweight and middleweight motorcycles because that's what those bikes are all about. And, you know, kind of focusing on the engine in relation to Laguna Seca, you can really use the top end power of, of the, the, the parallel twin engine, just wring it out and do so without fear. And as you mentioned earlier, like, is it tractable? Is it, you know, a very linear power to power delivery. Yes, it is in almost every capacity. The only sort of, um, black spot on its record is around the, I would say probably the five, five to six ish range, maybe, maybe give or take a couple hundred RPM, a couple hundred RPM right there. There is a bit of a flat spot that's really pronounced in second gear. And I would say that's probably due to some sort of, um, you know, trying to pass EPA or DOT uh, noise limitations. So essentially that's just emissions sort of coming down on the engine. Um, that's something that we've seen with more prevalence on a variety of motorcycles in the past, probably uh, maybe two to three years. Um, sure. So, you know, a pipe and a reflash good to go there. How bad is that flat spot? Is it just a sort of very brief thing?
0: I mean, you sort of quickly through it. I mean, do you, would you really not notice it in other situations?
1: Uh, if you can keep the RPMs above it, then obviously you're not affected by it. And the corner that it did stand out to me is turn 11, which is probably the slowest corner on that racetrack. Maybe not in terms of mile per hour, someone might go slower uh, entering the corkscrew, but you're, you're really parking it at turn 11 because it's a full 90 degree turn. Sure. Coming onto the front straight, it's it's probably yeah I, I I would say comfortably that it is I guess the slowest turn on that on that track and probably one of the most important too because you have to get a really solid drive onto the front straight so um, yeah that's where that flat spot did occur for me and essentially you're just sort of able to adapt and carry a little bit more roll speed and keep those RPMs up to try to avoid that flat spot so it's not detrimental where you turn the turn the throttle and it just falls on its face right you know it's not completely completely just you know going limp there but right and obviously on the street it's not going to affect anything no i think the only time it would stand out again is in a super tight technical slow road so the the key word here is very slow sections where you're just not going to be able to keep the rpm up right and that can happen on the road you know we know in the Santa Monica mountains in the Malibu area, there are plenty of twisty roads that are quite tight. And you know, you will need to go into seconds on a bike like this, even a bike of this size and on a big bike, even first gear makes sense. But sure. um, you know, in situations like that, I think you might be able to spike the RPMs a little higher and avoid that dip, but it just depends. So again, it's the slow stuff that'll get you. Uh, <laughs> But in every other capacity, no, it's not going to be noticeable. And I think for this type of buyer as well, you know, a, a pipe um, and a reflash is, uh, I don't want to say a natural progression, but it seems quite likely. Yeah, um, for sure. Knowing the, 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 the prelia animal as a, as I know it. Sure. Okay. So moving along. Yeah. I might as well talk about the gearbox. I mean, okay, good as any other place. Um, yeah. <laughs> six-speed gearbox and that does lead us into the electronics a little bit um comes with an up-down quick shifter so nice uh, clutchless shifting in either direction you know this is one little spot again that i I did notice some things where it's street inclinations kind of come into the mix the quick shift up you know as you're just doing the standard quick shifting that's awesome nothing really gets in the way of that that's wonderful and you know, it works really well in a racetrack setting. And so I was super impressed by that. The auto blipper also works well, I would say, 95% of the time. The only issue that you're going to have with the uh, auto blipper, and so that is the downshift that we're talking about specifically, is it has, I would say, a little bit more conservative overrev protection. And again, this is something that is only going to come up at the racetrack because if you think about riding on the street, how often do you really, um, you know, downshift within an earshot of the, the red line? Not too often, unless you're in some sort of panic situation. At the racetrack, that is a little bit more frequent. Um, sure. So if you are relying on the auto blipper and you're doing those rapid downshifts into slower corners, for example, right? that last downshift, um, you're going to need to let the RPM drop a little bit or just simply, simply revert to the old school style and grab that clutch and clutch through that shift. You know, uh, just as a bit of advice, I would say pick one strategy and stick with it for that particular scenario. Uh, it's a little tough to do auto blip, auto blip, and then grab the clutch and do the final shift. Usually just either use it or go old school. Um, but that's the only observation I have there. Other than that, the auto blip function when you're going into corners where you're not just spiking the revs super hard. Um, so basically every corner that isn't the corkscrew or turn 11, the thing works beautifully. And that's a really cool feature on a motorcycle like this, because, you know, say for uh, turn two, super hard braking zone and on the RS 660 I was coming down from six gear, you know, boom, boom, boom through the gearbox into the gear I need to be. And that's a really intense braking zone uh, for uh, people that haven't been to Laguna Seca because what is happening is you're going over the front straight, little curve over the hill, and then you're actually braking downhill. So it's might not look like it, but it is a super intense braking zone, especially on a bike where you're trying to maximize corner speed. So yeah, having the auto blipper there is just you're able to take your mind off of, you know, having to rev match manually and do all that stuff. And you can just focus on grabbing the brake and, you know, praying to whoever you pray to making sure <laughs> things yeah. get done. Yeah. But uh, yeah, auto blippers are invaluable. I think they fo- they allow you to focus on what you need to be doing, which is spotting your entry and exits and focusing on braking. And then the gearbox itself pretty immaculate overall i mean shifting is tight and sporty um you know it's if someone rides an rsv4 they might have the comparison like oh well it's not as it's not as as clean as the rsv4 and i'm like well yeah the rsv4 is like a lot more expensive (laughs) (laughs) okay wrong but um, no i mean the shifting overall is as you'd expect from a from a, a sport inclined motorcycle It's tight, um, you know, very tight shifting between gears, gear ratios, in my opinion, were pretty spot on in a street capacity. I've never really noticed any issues with that, uh, that aspect of the motorcycle and at the racetrack, I felt like the stock gearing was right there anyway, which, you know, more racetrack oriented, uh, listeners and readers will, will know that sometimes you do have to shift gearing depending on the needs of the racetrack. Um, a place with super long straightaways everywhere you might want to lengthen the gearing um, because you can use more of the engine more top speed essentially and super tight technical racetracks where top speed isn't a factor you might be shortening the gearing um right that's to help you get off the apex and get into the power bands and you know hustle around those tight technical sections uh laguna as technical as it is, it's also really free flowing, so yeah it's that that bike did really well there. I'm super impressed with it, just kind of talking about it in this capacity, and that's before we get into all the other stuff too. We've covered the
0: electronics before, but just as a quick summary, it has all the uh the
1: stuff that you find on the
0: superbikes, really, doesn't it? I
1: believe Yeah, yeah, I mean, stat for stat, it has everything that an r s v four can do um you know adjustable throttle maps, engine braking, uh, multiple ABS modes, lean angle sensitive traction control, uh, and also cornering ABS, just to mention that as well. Can you turn off the ABS if you need to on the racetrack? Not completely, but there is essentially a dummy mode that uh, disables ABS in the rear and also disables the IMU, Um, Okay. hence why I call it dummy ABS. And this is a strategy that a lot of manufacturers employ essentially to allow much more aggressive braking at higher lean angles. So if it removes that IMU, the bike is no longer detecting um, any sort of lean angle and therefore it assumes you're braking in a straight up and down line. And as we all know, your contact patch is much smaller at higher lean angles. So you'd never hit the ABS threshold and trigger it if you're braking aggressively. Now, the reason you can't disable ABS in the front is per Euro Euro five standards that's all hunky-dory, whatever. I rode the bike in ABS levels one and two, one being the most aggressive, which kills ABS in the rear. And I also tried two out just to kind of see where we were at. On the street, ABS two, no worries. I mean, really, if you're triggering ABS on the road, it's because you've hit some sort of low grip situation. And I think having the IMU is a huge benefit. On a racetrack scenario, I can see how riders may be on either side of the fence. I was able to use it, do some good laps. And yeah, I was triggering it, not to a point where I'd really kind of turn my nose up at it. I did opt for ABS-1 uh, the rest of the day, but that's personal preference based on your pace and skill level and everything else. Um, I just felt that I was able to break harder, more aggressively in ABS-level Mode one, um, which is what it was designed to do, so we're all good there. So with the TC, you get multi-level uh, traction control as well, and that's that's always really cool. But what I used primarily, there's basically eight levels of traction control. You have wheelie control, which for this, for this horsepower marker at that you know hundred horsepower uh, mark that we mentioned before, wheelie control. It's really going to depend on your comfortability with the motorcycle. If you want it there as that extra layer of security, leave it on. In my opinion, I didn't need it. I didn't feel that um, I needed any capacity. Nor did, nor does Laguna Sega really instigate wheelies except over turn one. Um, you know, the front will get light if you're carrying some good pace over there. But again, you know, wheelie control. I just turned it off to just extend the leash a little bit more. And uh, track control, I just put it in two and experimented with going down to one and turning it off. Because again, we are on straight up street tires using the Pirelli Diablo Corsa 2s, if I remember correctly, which is the stock tire that comes on the motorcycle. No fancy track tires this time around. Um, so this is a true stock bike on a racetrack sort of test. Um, and really, the only reason I kept it at at level one and two um, is just because you know we're on a standard street tire and as the day progresses as the tire wears the temperature increases etc etc just having that little extra layer of security is nice um that said the engine is tractable and you can control it quite easily just by managing the throttle um So even when I turn it off and I'd initiate some wheel spin during in some of the lower grip areas of Laguna Seca, particularly on the exit of turn two and um, also in turn three, which is pretty flat. Well, that's not not pretty flat. It's very flat. So there's no camber to help you out. And it's a a little bit beat up by cars and whatnot. So in some of those areas, that's where um, if I even saw the TC like, come on, that's where it would, it would come on. It's just you know, those are hard driving sections, plus low grip, plus street tires, you know, then you can just barely get a blip of TC. And again, it's really going to depend on your skill level. A super fast, um, you know, someone that's really focusing on club racing or Moto America stuff, they're going to have a different opinion than, than me, obviously. Um, they might just totally disable TC. And someone that's, you know, not in a, a group, they're running intermediate, novice, whatever, they might really like that extra layer of security that TC will give them. And that's, that's kind of the beauty of those systems. You can go hard in either direction. So yeah. And then we have the throttle maps, stuff like that, power modes, three of those. Um, honestly, I preferred the most aggressive one in that, in that context. And I think it's just the fueling's really crisp and clean. It's aggressive, but doesn't go overboard. Very fitting for a racetrack situation.
0: Sure. Okay. All right. Well, moving right along, um, you know, Laguna Seca, as you've already observed, is is uh, you know fast and flowing. So, presumably, the RS Six Hundred and Sixty has some pretty good handling associated with it, and of course, braking.
1: Yes, and the chassis to me is is kind of what this bike is all about, and what really separates it from all of its competitors or even comparables. You know, if we look at the class overall so if we look at the sv650 the ninja 650 the yamaha r 7 um, you know any of the middleweight motorcycles you know whether it's the nakeds or the the fully ferret equivalents they're all using steel trellis frames or tubular steel frames in some capacity whereas the aprilia uses a twin spar aluminum frame that is really how we're saving a lot of weight in comparison to those other those other motorcycles. The engine is a stress member for the chassis. Uh, swing arm is directly connected to, to the engine. Again, saving weight, less bracketry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when you look at it, it kind of seems like a smaller version of an RSV4 in a lot of ways. Um, and so there's a lot of technology and a lot of sophistication that you would expect from a sort of upper echelon brand like Aprilia kind of baked into the RS660. And just talking about the chassis overall, you know, the, the rideability of this motorcycle is like, that's what I really love about it. You know, it feels tight and sporty, it feels lightweight because it is, and you're able to just kind of chuck it around, get it on the edge of the tire without much effort. You know, the the feedback that you get from this motorcycle, again, Talking about its chassis sophistication, that's why it's a, I feel that it is a cut above against its competitors in this more extreme scenario of the racetrack where you know the feedback is just incredibly good from the front end to the rear end. You can feel traction coming in and out. You understand where uh, you know the bike is on the racetrack, if things are spinning up, if you're losing grip, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the handling overall is just superb. And even in stock trim, again, this is a fully stocked motorcycle. So we, outside of adjusting the, um, the KYB fork and shock, setting it up a little bit more for track riding, there's no changes beyond that. Um, and just touching on the suspension, uh, KYB fork, 41 millimeter, you have adjustability for preload and rebound. And then the shock has the same amount of uh, adjustability. So rebound and spring preload only. Again, it's not a fully adjustable shock, but quite a bit more than some of its competitors um, that don't offer any adjustability on on their forks. Uh, The R7 does for, for the record, but some of the other bikes don't. Anyway, I really enjoy the chassis of the R660. Again, at a track that really focuses on or forces rider to focus on carrying corner speed, carrying momentum, that's where this chassis really is able to shine. And uh, I think a lot of riders will be into that. Whether you're a, a more novice rider, the compliance of the motorcycle will definitely agree with you. And if you're a more advanced rider, you can take advantage of its nimble qualities and just start chucking the thing around into, into corners and <laughs> no bad. doing whatever you feel comfortable with because this thing is definitely up to the task. Right. Yeah, it sounds really well-balanced what's it, what's it like on the brakes? It has uh, Brembo brakes. It does. Um, now these are older Brembo brakes. They're still four piston, uh, radially mounted calipers, et cetera, et cetera. Does have 320 millimeter discs in the front. You know, braking power is more than adequate. Um, especially for a bike of this size weight and the speeds that you'll be achieving coming down into turn two, I think the fastest I was going was like 120 or 121 miles an hour or something like that. So you're on the binders pretty good, especially on a bike like this, where you are going to be braking a little bit deeper, trying to carry some momentum. So typically that does mean trail braking a little bit more aggressively. Going back to that ABS mode one. um, Yeah, you can trail brake deep as you dare, essentially. And um, braking feel is quite good in the front and rear. Um, Has a I wouldn't say a truly aggressive bite that, say, Stylemmas might offer that are featured on the RSV4 and Tuono factory. And I also think just the standard Tuono. at any rate. But what you get, I think, will appeal to a lot of riders where it's not too aggressive and definitely not too soft um, for someone that is really looking at this from a performance end of the spectrum. So braking, no complaints, really.
0: Excellent. So it sounds overall as though you really enjoyed the bike. It sounds like Laguna is, is pretty much the perfect track for this bike. If you want to go out and have a track day and have fun.
1: Yeah. I mean, Laguna is sort of a special place for motorcyclists overall. um, Just because of history that's, that's kind of uh, associated with a racetrack, but looking at it and applying the logic to, to other, other racetracks, you know, a Motorcycle like this, as we've said multiple times in this in this podcast, is really focused on extracting you know high corner speeds, getting on the gas early and uh, you know maximizing its potential through the chassis so leaning on its agility to get the job done instead of raw horsepower like like what a a leader bike might do and Laguna is a fast flowing racetrack um, you know other racetracks in California that I can think of that really um, want you to, to again, lean on the chassis, maximize maximize corner speed. Chuckwalla Valley Raceway out in in well Chuckwalla. <laughs> <laughs> sonoma has some areas like that uh you've ridden road america that seems quite flowy
0: yeah but that's fast it's got some really fast sections so you'd be at sort of wide open throttle for a long time not that there's anything wrong with that
1: yeah oh uh barber barber Motorsports. oh Barber, perfect yeah oh that that the, the rs 660 would love barber for sure um and then also the ridge up in washington you know, I haven't ridden it myself, but watching Moto America races. Yeah. And that said, this is an aside thing. Anyone that's listening to this definitely needs to go ahead and watch the Moto America Twins Cup racing because it's excellent. It's super close racing. You know, the top 10, maybe even more could definitely get on the podium or win on any, any given Sunday, so to speak. Um, but that is, that is awesome racing. And the R660 is a prominent figure in that, in that grid. Um, a lot of people are running it. It won the, the championship in its maiden voyage last year. So kind of all good there. I guess that does sort of lead us into a conversation about the ergonomics. Okay. It
0: seems a, a little silly to ask you about comfort on, on a racetrack, but in terms
1: of racetrack usability, what are the ergonomics like? So this is actually a really, really cool thing here, because if you take a close look at the RS-660, it is positioned as more of a street motorcycle that can do track days. And one of the things that you're going to see in the RS-660 overall is, you know, the riding position is sporty. Obviously it has, you know, more sport bike ergonomics to an extent. Visually, you know, it looks very reminiscent of an RS-V4, but Aprilia smartly um, included things like the sort of faux clip-on riser handlebars. So that's going to prop you up a little bit, keep your weight off the wrists. And, you know, it still has an RSV4-inspired um, uh, overall aesthetic. And the fuel tank is of the same design. You know, it has these swooping kind of cuts for your knees to allow lots of grip and real estate when you're hanging off the motorcycle. The seat is strangely comfortable for a sport bike. Um, I would say the latest RSV4 and the RS 660 and also the Ducati Street Fighter and the Panigale for that matter, all employ seats that if we think back to, you know, prior generations of sport bikes overall from every manufacturer, they did not really focus on, you know, comfort for your backside, we'll say. And uh, these bikes do. Um, you're not too cramped in the leg positions. And so all these things you might be listening to me and and go, well, okay. That doesn't, you know, that sounds more street worthy in a lot of ways it is. Um, so does that hold it back at the racetrack? No, not really. I I wouldn't say so at all. I think if I were to start tracking this bike or racing it, I would go to a more traditional set of clip-ons just to get that slightly more aggressive profile. But if I'm an owner that does the occasional track day with his buddies, um, you're more than set. I mean, I was still able to get really aggressive, really stick my elbows out, drop down and do all the, all the fun stuff for Instagram that, uh, you might want to do at a track day, <laughs> but yeah, the, the sort of riser clip-ons, not only do they make it more comfortable for the length of the day, because you're not, we'll say prone to, to, uh, add weight to your wrists. You know, it, it's, it's just less taxi overall. It's like, it's like riding an RSV4 at the racetrack versus a 20. 20 is upright. So you're not in that more aggressive riding position using your core strength. But this is sort of in between. It is a comfy motorcycle overall. I, I'd always think that rolling out onto, uh, you know, uh, out of pit lane and then coming in, where, you know, I'd go, oh, this thing actually is pretty comfy at low speeds. You know, it's a sort of recap, you know, what we got with the RS660. Awesome little motor. Yeah, there is a bit of a, you know, flat spot that's most pronounced in second gear, kind of in that, you know, five to mid 6,000 RPM range. Um, You know, even with the, we'll say, budget suspension still works quite well. I think if you're really focused on hammering lap times and you're a truly focused track day guy or gal or even club racer, yeah, you're going to swap out and, you know, swap out the shock and do cartridge kit for the fork. And you'll be, you'll be golden that'll definitely net a couple seconds right off the top um but again i mean this suspension i wouldn't say it held me back at all um you know the, the gearbox is really good the only thing is that when you really start spiking the revs yeah that auto blipper can show its street sensibilities this, this is something that will never happen on the street at all and the chassis it's just excellent. It's, it really pairs well with the kind of horsepower that this engine is making. And that sort of, yeah, that really just locks it in for me because you have this engine that you can use. You can extract everything that you want out of it. And then you have a chassis that, you know, just really carries you along and allows you to do whatever you want, whatever your skills will allow. And I think that applies to riders that are at the the start of their sport riding career and people that are really focused on pushing it to the next level via club racing racing whatever so it's a very versatile package that you know was supposed to be kind of a street bike but again really can't <laughs> help okay so all of this
0: all of this for um a quick price refresh uh what is the what's the cost of this bike
1: we're talking uh $11, um and then plus 200 bucks for the lava red and acid gold colorways i rode the apex black color just because well that's <laughs> what they had during um the april racer days program
0: sounds and good then, well it sounds like you had a lot of fun and it sounds like it's a, a great bike it's a, a great street bike that works really well on the track as well
1: yeah yeah there's not much holding it back really i mean again, I, I did this full test at, you know, the Aprilia Racer Days uh, track day event, which tours the entire United States. So you can go out there and test various Aprilia's, um, you know, get some laps in and, uh, you know, Aprilia's whole, whole purpose for this is to hopefully get more butts and seats. But yeah, it was a full-blown stock test. So, you know, we did it on street tires and even the Pirelli Diablo Rosso Corsa Two performed well, despite the fact that it's a street tire. You could definitely see its limitations in a racetrack setting, but now it held its own great. All right, sounds good. Hey, appreciate your insight
0: as always. Sounds like a fun motorcycle. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called our world and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle as well as experienced riders seeking a fully-faired motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true Supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine, inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite Canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. In this second segment, I chat with another one of my good buddies and riding friends from Honda, Mike Snyder. Mike was in the marketing department at Honda for several years before he retired a couple of years ago. His insights into a couple of the models and technologies developed during his tenure are interesting to hear. He's also quite the rider himself, an ex-club racer who, although he's hung up his racing leathers, he's now a guy
2: who really enjoys his foreign touring exploits too. I was road racing a, a Hurricane 600 at the time. So uh, I uh, I was a car guy during the week and I was a bike guy on the weekends. And um, that went on for some time. And of course there was some overlap, but most of the time um, through the 90s, I was on the auto side. And uh, I road raced from, um, Well, I started in in 81, but when I moved to LA, I road raced out here from like 92 to 95 or six, and uh, finally stopped at that point when my joints started hurting too much. (laughs) But but, uh, I didn't get involved at at the motorcycle end until after 2020, uh, excuse me, 2010. And um, it was actually a rotation, and I was offered a job in auto sales and, and a job and the marketing director in motorcycles. So the motorcycle job was clearly more up my alley. And I, I took that and I believe that was about 2013. And, uh, I did that until I retired. So it was during that time that you and I met and, uh, got to be friends. Um, but you know what, I've been riding motorcycles pretty much nonstop since 1974. And, uh, to do it as a pastime is great and to do it as a as a uh, way to make money, as you know, is equally <laughs> great, but not always the same as just riding and having a good time. Somewhat challenging for sure. Yeah, the, the, uh, the first time that you
0: and I met was when Honda decided to, to create the RC213VS. Right. That crazy $200,000 motorcycle. And so we ended up traveling to Catalonia together um and what were you were you part of the genesis behind that bike or or any of the involvement there
2: i was not involved in the genesis on the mechanical side but uh i was involved in our strategy on how to bring that to market so um the cool thing about honda is that there's everybody has a say and everybody's voice is heard and uh, there's a, a a saying at honda it's one of the the three tenets of of being a Honda employee is the respect for the individual. And what that literally means, if you translated it from Japanese to English is, we wanna hear everybody's opinion about everything. So um, the decision was made to bring that to market and the decision was made to bring that bike in as a street legal bike. And uh, we had a lot of discussion about that because making it street legal as, as you know, would uh, compromise a lot of the performance, you know, and and we had fought back and forth a little bit on that, but our president basically said, look, I want to build a, I want to build a MotoGP bike that people can ride on the street. I want people to be able to ride our technology from the MotoGP racetrack on the street, whenever they want to. And um, just as a side note, those bikes are not replicas. I don't know if you and I had this discussion before, but those bikes are actual race bikes produced on the race line from race parts. So like the frames are the are the same part number as the racing frames, unless there's a tab or two welded on for something extra. But, But it was not a production replica bike. It was an actual race bike created on the the race line at hrc and then destined for street use so anyway going back and forth uh with my career i was uh, arguing with our certification guys about whether we could make uh, as you know there was a kit for the bike in europe that would bring it back to uh higher horsepower and make it not street legal and of course we went round and round on that as far as certification goes and we were not able to convinced them to let us offer that um, based on our interpretation of the laws here. So um, the bike came in as a street bike. Uh, I think we have three of them in the market in the U.S. And uh, unfortunately, I never rode one. You, on the other hand, rode one, but I never rode one. It was,
0: it was absolutely extraordinary. I, I've, uh, I've talked about it. I've sort of hinted at it on, on previous versions of the podcast, but it literally changed my perception of the way motorcycles work—it was—it's—it's it's one thing to ride a bike, a, a light motorcycle, and there are lots of people around there that have ridden light bikes. I, I mean, heck, you can take a, you know, a small motorcycle, a you know, a TZ two fifty race bike or what have you, and produce right. power and, and go out and sort of and and ride it, you know, relatively fast. Um, but this this bike was not it wasn't really just the absolute weight of it because in, in sort of old two-stroke terms, actually it's not that light. I mean, it's over 300 pounds. Um, but when you consider that it's something like a hundred pounds lighter than an R1, um, it's more about where that weight is placed. And Honda's, Honda's mantra of sort of mass centralization makes the bike handle in an extraordinary way so so riding it 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 felt literally as though the bike just simply reacted to how you think and that sounds like such a cliche but but when i, I remember pulling out of the pits uh, you know at, at, uh, at valencia and kind of uh, pulling onto that short straightaway before the the tight doing corner and i was thinking i thought my god it just does, it doesn't feel like i'm riding anything that it feels like there's nothing underneath me. And so I did the whole, you know, weaving sort of backwards and forwards a little bit to to try and get the feel of the bike. I was like, my God, this thing is so reactive and yet it's not overreactive. I had this feeling that when I would come into a corner, I, because I'm simply not a, a, at a MotoGP rider's level, I thought I'm gonna come into a corner, I'm gonna turn in too early, the bike's going to flop into the corner because it's way, way too light. And I'm going way too slowly. And I'm going to end up having to bring it upright and then bring it back down again. And I'm going to sort of wobble my way around these corners. And it's just going to be very humiliating. But it actually wasn't like that. I could turn in at any point And the bike didn't overly turn in or, or not turn in enough. It simply did exactly what I wanted. And literally after about the first lap or two, I thought, I started thinking the way I, I absolutely should not. I was thinking, wow, this thing is so capable that let's push it a bit further. And well, if anything goes wrong, I can probably save it. <laughs> so, which of course, there's no way I could, but but it makes you feel like that. And I it made me realize, no wonder Mark Marquez rides the way he does because he literally feels completely invincible on it because he's about the only guy on the planet that does have the skills to pull it back. And of course, we've, there's video after video of of these sort of uh, you know crazy saves that Marquez made on the front. But the bike makes it makes it feel like that. Um, so yeah, it was an extraordinary achievement by Honda. Um, I, I know there were a few frustrations about
2: you know the the, the race kit on it. Well, the, the race kit is actually fabulous. I don't know if you've seen one, but uh, it's uh, shipped when you buy it. It's shipped in the same type of shipping container they use for the Moto G pipe B bikes when they ship them, you know, to the various races and it's got, you know, a uh, headlight delete and different electronics and, in uh, very, very Honda esque fashion they've got little covers to cover the turn signal holes and all that stuff the problem without getting into a lot of detail which i guarantee you won't interest your listeners is uh the issue where with with compliance with the emissions rules is if you bring a bike in that is certified for road use you cannot produce the parts to decertify that same bike and that that law is interpreted differently with different manufacturers, and so the, you know, like Kawasaki, I believe, has parts for their um, their 1000s that require a certain harness, which takes the headlight out, which means it's not street legal. There's ways that you interpret that, but the, our folks at Honda couldn't come up with a way to to feel comfortable about it, so we were not able to offer the kit in the U.S. But the kit basically turned it from a 160 horsepower uh u.s certified street bike to around 210 horsepower track bike right but again going back to what i said a few minutes ago our president at the time who is a bike fanatic um said look i want to produce this for the street and it needs to be a street bike so you know that that was his intention and uh i i appreciate that intention i i don't know if I would do it differently. I don't know. You know, that's kind of a hard thing to say, but, uh, but it certainly was a cool part of the job. It was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable
0: um, statement made by Honda. And, and just that bike, even as a
2: street bike, must be absolutely extraordinary. To your point, um, when I raced, which was long before the days of ABS and, and uh, fuel injection even and so forth, um, so much of your effort was spent on anticipation, right? So what's your brake marker? Where can I roll the throttle back on? And all those were really not, you know, current activities, they were pre- pre- precursors for the next phase of the of the track, you know, of around around the track, right? So imagine when your brake marker goes from brake marker three to one, and what that changes about the dynamics of that lap, you know, where you've got a bike that you don't have to set up and drag into the turn with you you can just simply you know push the bar and have it turn over as as you intended and all of those all of those moments spent trying to initiate and trying to plan you can now use to figure out how to go faster in that turn so um i have a feeling it would make any not nothing against your capabilities sir but uh, i have a feeling it would make anybody faster i would think yeah yeah Absolutely amazing. So were there, was there
0: anything else that you were sort of any other products that you were involved with that, that uh, you know, that
2: uh, you found interest? Well, um, there's a couple of things I probably shouldn't talk about yet because they haven't come out yet. But we spent uh, a number of visits to Japan looking at pre-production and test riding mules and so forth. And uh, I was involved uh, quite a bit with, um, the new uh, uh, CRF450X, I was involved with the Goldwing, the current Goldwing. Um, I was involved to some some degree with Africa Twin, more, more with Africa Twin on the updates. Uh, and those weren't really actualized until I left, but uh, some of the things with Africa Twin that made it more competitive with the other bikes in the market. So I got to be involved with the Goldwing as we sorted out the DCT and spent some time up at our uh, test track up in California City trying to sort out the shift points and the um, downshifting and so forth, which was a lot of fun. Yeah,
0: I mean, again, DCT is another extraordinary achievement. And, And I mean, interestingly, DCT first came out on the VFR 1200. I remember going to Japan and trying that for the first time. But it was always, to me, the Goldwing was always the most obvious platform to to run that on. And I was, you know, really happy when Honda finally decides to put that on. What, what are your thoughts on DCT? Have you ridden a lot of DCT? Do you like it?
2: Um, I do like it. Uh, it's, you know, people think of automatics and they think of the old Trail 70s and stuff with a centrifugal clutch and then a regular shift lever and it's, It's basically like driving a car automatic on two wheels. So, you know, it it idles at a stop and then you gas it and it goes, it shifts up through the gears, you come into a turn and brake and it downshifts, and then accelerates out in the right gear. And in fact, the same technology is now used on a lot of high-end cars, you know, Porsche and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a technology that's capable of doing a lot of, uh, performance oriented tasks as well as something for you know like newbies and whatnot but uh, I think that the Goldwing benefits a lot from DCT it's nice bike to ride either way. Uh, the Africa twin I think we probably didn't do as good a job as we could have um, explaining to the market what DCT gave you so when DCT shifts you can on the off-road function on an Africa twin, You can set it up to do uh, gravel. It's called a gravel mode where it will hang the tail out a certain amount and defeat the traction control uh, as you would want, you know, going fast on something like a fire road. And it's actually pretty cool technology. And uh, uh, we got Johnny Campbell involved in working with it. And, uh, you know, he was a big help. But I don't think we promoted that as much as we should have to the public because definitely worth it.
0: Yeah, it, I think the thing that most people don't realize with DCT, and this is, the, this is the sort of the key point for me, is when you talk about automatics, everybody's experience as a general rule with an automatic is an automatic with a, a slush box or a constantly variable transmission like a scooter. In other words, you turn the throttle, And there's a delay while everything builds up the pressures. And in other words, there is no direct connection between the throttle and what's happening at the tires. The difference with DCT is DCT, there is exactly that direct connection. In other words, every incremental change at the throttle affects the same as it does, affects the rear tire. So, which obviously is very crucial on a motorcycle. If you're in the middle of a corner and you you come back on the throttle at the apex or you try to accelerate through the apex, you don't then have to wait several seconds while something happens. You do anything at the throttle and it happens at the rear wheel. So you get all of the feel of, of riding a normal motorcycle. You've just got this sort of seamlessly changing gear shift, gearbox, which you can choose to do manually with the switches on the handlebar or you can just let it do it automatically but but in other words you get this sort of you have the responsibility of gear changing taken away from you if you choose to but you're not sacrificing any feel while you're riding it and that's that's crucial to me
2: well and you know you're exactly right and the main difference between DCT and uh, old school automatic transmissions is the lack of a torque converter. So to, your, to quote you from just a minute ago, there is no direct connection between the throttle and the, and the rear wheel. There's a fluid coupling, right? And that fluid coupling has some variability, particularly in newer cars, but it's really not, you're not able to control it that much. Whereas on a DCT, the, all of that shifting and all of that locking and unlocking of the drivetrain is handled by clutch packs, which are controlled by a solenoid, which can be controlled by a brain that says we need a harder shift, we need a softer shift. And so as you're showing the bike more a more aggressive posture, you're going to get a more aggressive lockup of each gear when it goes into those gears. So... Um, to your point, it's going to give you even that much more fine tuning when you ride it in a sporting fashion. We rode the Goldwing, um,
0: a couple of years ago, uh, and went up the 33 and out to San Luis
2: Obispo. And man,
0: the bike was absolutely fantastic. It was very impressive,
2: really impressive technology. The only thing I, I didn't care for on that particular bike, uh, with no bis- disrespect to Honda, but, uh. I uh, I was not comfortable with the way that bike initiated turns. It was uh, it took a, and I'm a big guy, as you know. It took a lot of time and a lot of my a lot of my uh, mass movement to get the thing to initiate a turn. Once you got in the turn, though, it was steady as a rock, and you could lean it way over, and there'd be no problem. But uh, um, it's definitely not a, a it's not a, an R1 as you say when you're initiating turns. But the transmission wonderful they did a good job and they continue to refine it too they've uh, i think last year they updated the software again and they're they work on it quite a bit because it's a it's a it's a unique technology for honda so you talked about the africa twin have you done a lot of
0: writing of that or or are you not so much of an off-road guy
2: well i'm a i'm an old not so much of an off-road guy you know my I grew up in a city and I learned to ride street bikes and uh, we didn't have places to ride off road. Um, and then when I moved to California, my friends out here decided I need to learn how to ride in the desert. And so um, I did and, and I actually enjoyed it and I was reasonably, I was competent, let's put it that way. But uh, it's a big difference to me between riding a 250 pound motocross bike in the desert versus a 500 pound you know, off-road adventure bike. And, uh, consequently I'm my off-road skills for things like Africa twin are limited to gravel roads and whatnot. And I, I did a fair amount of, uh, of off-roading in that respect with Africa twin. And it's a, it's a great bike, you know, it's, you basically just point it where you want to go and hit the gas. It's comfortable. And, uh, if it's DCT, you don't have to think about much, you know, and, uh, and, you know, the the whole point of adventure bikes is to look around and soak in what you're, what adventure you're getting into that day, you know? Um, and, uh, I've, I've done a fair amount of, of time on it. I had one for quite a while. Uh, I have not spent any time on the, the 1100 and, uh, I was involved with the changes in that bike. We, uh, we were in Japan, and we were told that they couldn't—they uh, couldn't put cruise on it, they couldn't put uh, adjustable suspension on it, they couldn't put uh, a few of the other odds and ends on it that the BMW GS has, without exceeding the weight limits. And they—we ground on them, and they ground on us back. And uh, and then after I left the company, lo and behold, here's the new bike with everything we asked for <laughs> that weighs less than the original bike. So it was a interesting. Interesting uh situation, but I haven't ridden that bike, so I would have to defer to you on that one. I would imagine it's everything the first one was plus uh car play and plus cruise and all that stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah, amazing. Well, I know you do you do a lot of mileage. I mean you do a lot of traveling, don't you? What are some of the uh like the best places you've traveled to? I know you you did it, you had an abroad trip, wasn't it like a year ago or something? I get a bit confused because of all the COVID
2: crap, but yeah, well, COVID kind of shot down the uh, European travel for a while, but I've done a number of Edelweiss tours in Europe, which is uh, rental bikes in uh, Spain and Italy and, and Sicily and, and uh, Poland and uh, all over. And of course, there's nothing like riding the Alps. The Alps are the most amazing place in the world um, and the culture of the, uh, the area and so forth. But uh, in the U.S., Particularly with COVID, I've been doing quite a number of trips. We did a, we flew up to Alaska and rode back. Uh, we're oh, doing wow. a number of trips to Colorado. The San Juans are a favorite, you know, Telluride and and uh, um, Silverton in that area. Um, as a matter of fact, next week I'm just going to do a short ride up to one of my favorite spots in California, which is uh, on uh, the Yuba River. So. Highway 49 between uh, uh, Reno and basically back towards Grass Valley in that area. So beautiful roads. It's cooler because it's at elevation. Um, Nice people. So that's what the bike's all about, right? That's what getting out there and enjoying it all. That sounds great. So how how did you get to do Alaska then? Did you fly up there and rent something or did
0: you ride through Canada and do it?
2: Well, I'm I'm too much of a chicken to ride all the way up there and back, but I'm <laughs> I'm getting closer to that. Thinking I may do something like that. But uh, we had two, a bunch of guys doing the ride, and two of them rode all the way up and uh, camped all the way and put about sixty five hundred miles on their bikes. But the rest of us flew into uh, Anchorage and rented uh, rented in an Anchorage and rode back from there. So the we rented with um, Moto. MotoQuest, and uh, they bring their inventory down in the fall and take it up in the spring, so they'll usually uh, orchestrate some kind of a deal if you want to do that, either of those type things. Um, but, you know, that trip is mostly through Canada because you're only in Alaska for a couple days, and uh, I really want to go back to Alaska and spend maybe a, a week or two just riding in Alaska itself and... Uh, probably rent in that case because otherwise you're you know you're adding a lot of mileage but uh... was it what was the most striking thing
0: about Alaska to you I mean was there anything particularly memorable
2: well I mean the the scenery is is without peer you know the scenery is is absolutely stunning and I guess the most interesting thing is that you don't really see any other people you know there's no there's no houses there's no other cars you know you'll go a whole half a day for example without seeing another car and uh you're riding along and there'll be a bunch of bears across the road and you kind of hang back a little bit of course or uh the biggest thing are the bison there's bison all over and they like to run down the side of the road so there's nothing more weird than riding and having 30 bison running alongside you some on the road some off the road and then just waiting for that one to decide to cross the road in front of you. But, uh, oh. <laughs> well, uh, it's just amazing. Wow.
0: Yeah. A couple of friends of mine, uh, who are very well traveled said that Alaska in, uh, I think August, September is the most spectacular place they've ever seen. Yeah. I think just the, the sort of the scenery and the, the fauna and what have you, the flora. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. I've never actually been to Alaska. I think it's on my bucket list for sure. Well, let's set something up. Yeah, let me know when you're going. We'll uh, we'll come with you. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> Definitely. So, uh, so your, your career at Honda, I mean, obviously you're so in, imbued with racing.
2: You really got involved in the motorcycle racing side of things, didn't you? Well, I, again, like I said, I started long before I started working for Honda. I was at the dealership. I had quit grad school because I didn't, I decided motorcycling was more fun, which wasn't the popular decision with my parents, of course, but uh, (laughs) anyway, um, I went to my, I got hooked on racing in the early eighties. So going to Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin and seeing Freddie Spencer and, you know, Kenny Roberts and all those guys and crazy Ducatis I'd never seen before. Um, and so then I I club raced all through the eighties and, uh, when I moved out to California, I took a couple of years off, and then I club raced again through the, the 90s, basically. Um, and then I, when I started with the motorcycle division, sometime after that, it was uh, it was disheartening to me to see that we had basically walked away from road racing. You know, the there was the issue with the AMA where uh, many of the manufacturers had had some. Um, arguments with them about the, the rule book and so our team dried up and we had uh, John Ulrich and his folks at the time but that was far from factory sponsorship so 2014 I, I talked my boss into giving me some a little bit of money to go road racing and we we ended up partnering with Danny Walker and he had a sponsorship with the Broaster Chicken Company so it was the Men of Broaster Chicken Honda <laughs> Road Racing I remember that Uh, well. Which uh, both of those, Danny's a great guy and runs a real good team. And uh, the Broaster Chicken folks were a lot of fun and and good sports. And uh, That was awesome.
0: That was with uh, Jake Gagné, I think,
2: riding. It was originally, yeah. And then we lost Jake to to World Superbike, of course. And then uh, a couple of the other guys who are now winning in Moto America. So uh, had we stuck with it a little bit longer, we may have been doing pretty well yeah what was the the sort of the
0: the most interesting part about about the racing program for you
2: well the, the most interesting part we ran into was that because we were one of the very few teams racing the honda in the u.s we did not have a lot of uh there was the information supply wasn't very large so the gsxrs and the r1s you know there was plenty of information out there and HRC wasn't committed to our program, uh, and uh, we worked some with Tenkade, uh out of the Netherlands who was doing the world superbike effort for Honda. Um, but we uh, we struggled quite a bit with with trying to get the right electronics package. and uh, that was an ongoing challenge. it was a it was it was a good challenge, kind of fun to to work on the problem, but it was also very disheartening when you knew you could do better and you just didn't have the right equipment to do it. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, Honda are doing, are
0: doing a lot better now in World Superbike. I I'm, I'm assume that you follow that, but uh, but the new team with, uh, you know, with Vieje and especially with Le, uh, Lecuona is, is really, they're starting to, starting to get some results.
2: Yeah, and uh, I appreciate the fact that they're involved in that, so that, um, the HRC president at the time I talked to and he had, he had committed, he said, you know, we need to fix this before we do anything at at any other level, which obviously they've done that. But if you'll notice, it took them a while to get to where they are. Um, well, of course. Well, but I mean, the Tenkati stuff was actually pretty well down the road. And the only issue they had was the electronics stuff, uh, And uh, HRC didn't want to work with them, so they went off on their own. And the first couple, two or three years were pretty dismal. So I think they finally realized that this is not, the World Superbike is not like guys with pipes on their stock bikes. You know, it's actually (laughs) an equivalent technology to MotoGP or similar anyway. And I think once they accepted that and started investing the manpower, you know, they were able to do pretty well. So. Yeah, I uh, I talked to Jeff May. I don't know if you're familiar with Jeff, but uh, Jeff uh, is one of the lone guys racing a CBR 1000 in Moto America, doing well. Uh, he put it on the podium when I was at Road America this year. Um, and uh, he's running super sports. So that's a little bit less of a challenge as far as finding technology. Uh, but he says the bike is, is every bit as competitive as anything else out there. And it's just a matter of having the right upgrades and having the right guy in the, in the seat, you know? Interesting. I think, uh, I think hiring
0: Leon Camia at the world level was, was a, a good decision. Um, just as an aside, I was talking to a uh, Brian Gillen at, at uh, Moto at MV Augusta a few years ago, and uh, back in the days when Leon Camia was riding for them. And Brian said to me, he said, he said, we call we nicknamed Leon Camia the computer because he said I've never met anyone with such an astounding ability to completely recount anything and everything that that, that's happening on the bike and he said he can go out in practice and pull in and he'll say well on you know lap three uh, I was going into a turn thus and such and the motor was at this revs and I was in third gear and you know this is what I was feeling and he said, and we go to the data, and he was absolutely right. And he said it was incredible, his, his level of recall. So I've, I've got a lot of hope for Honda in World Superbike. I think, I think they're going to do well.
2: Yeah, me too. I mean, it, they've, they've struggled with it long enough, and I, I think their commitment is there. So. But uh, you know, to your point, a lot of these guys um, are not computers, and they just get mad because it doesn't work right but they can't tell you what's wrong with it and uh I know that's or there's somebody like Marquez that just gets on the thing and twists the throttle and you know goes super fast and you're not quite sure what what he's doing differently you know <laughs> right his recovery appears to be on track
0: so we'll see what happens he'll be back for next year and I think it's going to be uh it's going to be interesting
2: he's posted a lot of pictures playing with his dog so I think it's time to get done with the dog for a while and get back on the bike
0: <laughs> exactly i mean i know you're retired do you miss anything about about honda or, or working there or do you
2: uh, enjoying the life of leisure that
0: <laughs> that is now mike snyder
2: well um you know the best part of honda was the people um we had an outstanding group of people um and i i knew so many people everybody from the the lady and customer are in customer uh, or in, in company cars who has been there now in her 40 some years and uh, she was part of the team and the gal who processed our expense reports and all these people were great and were fun and you could, you could call them up and get any help with anything you wanted. And uh, the nice thing about the people though is you keep the people. So I don't have to do PowerPoint anymore and I don't have to go into work and sit at a desk with a suit on but I can call up my old friends and we can go riding, or we can do anything we want. So uh, you'll remember John Seidel. I think you know John worked for me in the motorcycle division, and we uh, we did a trip to Europe together and rode through Poland and Hungary, and uh, and uh, it was a, it was a wonderful experience, you know. So you keep the you keep the people and offload the rest. I can't think of a better way to go. Yeah, First it's nice to have a paycheck versus spending money you've already saved but that's another matter <laughs> yeah yeah
0: okay well mike i i really appreciate you you coming on the podcast it's been great talking to you thank you so much
2: oh it's my pleasure i i appreciate the everything you do for the sport and i consider you a good friend personally i like spending time with you so anytime i can help out let me know yeah thanks and uh,
0: let's start planning the trip to alaska
2: I'm up, I'm there, let's go, let's do it.